What God's looking for is people that are weak and that are willing to recognize they're weak. People that are humble and are willing to stay humble. God uses our weaknesses. Nobody in history had a greater impact on the church, other than Jesus, obviously, than the Apostle Paul. There is much from the Apostle Paul that we can learn about being used by God and having influence that impacts the world. What made him so strong? Why was his ministry so effective? The answer, weakness. Not just some small weakness, but a weakness that was so disturbing to Paul that he pleaded with God to take it away. God's answer to Paul's request was no. Listen in today as Pastor Joplin examines what God does to keep us humble and some reasons why God uses these methods with us. My sermon title this morning is called The Secret of Spiritual Power. And I went back and forth on switching the title. I ended up sticking with this title. The reason that I'm conflicted with the title, The Secret of Spiritual Power, is that really this is like one of four or five things. I'm gonna deal with one aspect that is required to live with spiritual power this morning, but there are a handful of other things that are also necessary to really walk in power with God. This morning, we're gonna look at one of those, and we're gonna find it in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses two through 10. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard the things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man, I will boast, but on, be, on my own behalf, I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I will not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth, but I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. So, to keep me from becoming conceited, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh. A messenger of Satan harassed me to keep me from being, becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me, for the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Obviously, other than Jesus, Jesus had the greatest impact on the church in history. But other than Jesus, the Apostle Paul, who wrote this passage here, had the greatest impact, has had the greatest impact on the church in human history. In fact, if you don't know this, he wrote well over half of the New Testament. Paul was used in a capacity of God that was what we would call extremely successful. Paul would go to one city and start a church, get the church going, train people, raise up elders, get the church established, and then move on down the road, do the same thing at another location, and eventually get that church established and move down the road and do the same thing at another location. He was a church planting machine. He was a gospel preaching machine, soul saving machine. He, he accomplished so much for the kingdom of God. 
And what I want us to do this morning when we think about Paul's success, I want us to look at it through the lens of what God did to Paul to make Paul usable. Why was Paul so successful in ministry? Where did his power come from? I want to give you kind of layman's terms of the text that we read. So Paul was explaining what was going on. I just want to make sure everyone else understands. Here's what Paul basically said. 14 years ago, I was called up to heaven. Now, whether I went or it was like out-of-body experience, I'm not real sure. God knows. All I know is I was there. And what I saw and what I heard, I can't even utter with these lips. And so technically... I have a lot to boast about, right? Like I'm someone that was really close to God. I've seen things nobody else has seen. But to keep from getting conceited, to keep me humble, God allowed this thing in my life that I absolutely despised. In fact, I despised it so much, I prayed about it three different times for God to take it away. And God's answer was, no, I'm not going to take it away. And the purpose of that thing was to keep me humble. The lesson this morning, brothers and sisters, is real simple, and that is that one of the secrets of spiritual power is staying humble. It's one of the secrets. But when we look at the text, here's what I want us to see this morning. God played the major role in keeping Paul humble. In fact, Paul was like, I don't want this thing. I want it to go away from me. I'd like it if God would remove it. I'm going to talk to God about it. But God's answer was, no, this is going to be a part of your life to keep you humble. And so I want us to look at this morning, really from our text, from the study of Paul's life, what I would call four actions, four things that God does to keep us humble. The first thing we see is that God at times says, no, to our prayers. It's one of the actions God does that keeps us humble. Sometimes God says no to our prayers. When I was studying this uh, passage, something really like resonated with me this week. And that is this. Even the apostles dealt with at times God saying no. I want you to think about what we learned from this text. Here's what Paul said. I asked God three times about this thing. Yes, is that what he said? And then he says, and then God answered, my grace is sufficient. Here's what we know. We know, and I'm going to get there. We read it in the text. Paul was satisfied with the answer. In fact, he was so satisfied with the answer, he eventually boasted in his weaknesses. Yes? This indicates to me That the first two times that Paul prayed, God, would you please take this thing away from me? Here's what he heard. Nothing. Because in this situation, God did have an answer. The answer was, Paul, my grace is sufficient. No, I'm not going to take it away. But he didn't just leave it at that. He actually answered. So the first time, there's nothing. To me, what I believe, because this is the way most of our prayer lives go, he went on down the road a little bit, trusting God, giving God some time to, you know, 
get to his priority list, and oh, here it is, Paul, we're going to answer this prayer. But eventually, it's not answered. He's vexed again, enough that it's bothering him that he drops to his knees a second time and says, God, please take this thing away from me. And here's what he hears. Nothing. The third time God answers. We don't know the distance between the second and third prayer. But here's the point, and I'm telling you, it's very encouraging for me. Even the apostles dealt with times when they sought the face of God and didn't get the response they were looking for, and at times there was no response. You ever prayed about something that was serious? Not just some little thing, it's serious. It's like you need an answer. This is vexing you. It is consuming your mind. It is bothering you. You think something needs to change, and you go and you kneel before God and you pray, and what you get is nothing. No answer at all. Feels like you're praying to the wall. Listen, I've been there. And one of the things I'm encouraged to know is that God always hears. You remember when Daniel prayed several times? And it wasn't until later that he got the answer. God heard you on the first day. A lot of times God hears us. He's just not answering yet. You need to know that even the disciples dealt with silence in the prayer room sometimes. And then eventually came the answer. The answer was, nope, I'm not going to take it away. So like I'm going to speak back to you. I'm going to give you an answer, but the answer is not the one you want. Paul, the answer is no. You're going to live with this forever, as far as we know. Sometimes God says no to keep us humble, brothers and sisters. And I want to remind you that God knows better than you do what you need. No doubt, Paul, just like you and I, here's what we tell God. Like, God, if you need me to be humble, I get it, but let's make a deal. You answer this prayer, and you get this thing out of my life, and I promise I'll be the most humble person on the planet. And he probably would have really meant it. But God knows what it takes to keep us humble. I would say it this way as well. God's answers are wiser than our prayers. A lot of times we think we know what we need, but only God truly knows. Number two, the second action God takes to keep us humble, he challenges our contentment. I find it interesting that when Paul comes to the conclusion here uh, in uh, verse 10, he says, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions. You will also find in Philippians chapter 4, Paul talking about how he can do all things through Christ. And he, he goes on to say he has learned how in all things to be content. He says the same basic statement. God will challenge your contentment to keep you humble. Let me ask it this way. If God says no, are you still going to show up and worship? That's the right answer. But, but if God says no, you're not getting that relationship. He's walking out. She's walking out. The answer's no. You still going to show up and worship? 
If God says no, you're not going that direction. You're not getting that promotion. You're not able to do this thing. You're not able to do that thing. The answer is no. Your husband's not going to change. Your wife is not going to change. Your kids are not going to change. Your parents aren't going to change. The answer is no. Can you still show up and worship? Can you still give him your all? God will bring us to this place where our contentment is challenged. I truly believe that one of the major reasons that um, spiritually America, the church in America has weakened is because we are too content. We have too much. And our things consume us. We are constantly marketed to why we should not be content with what we have and why we need more than we currently possess. And so we live with an attitude of, I'm thankful for what I have, but I want more. That's different. That's not really being content. If I want more, I'm not content. It's possible to be thankful for what you have and not be content. To be content is to be, I'm thankful for what I have and I'm satisfied with what I have. And we're not. We want more. And one of the primary ways that God will challenge your contentment is he'll try to get you to give something up. That's, that's how you'll know if you're really content or not with, with God's will for your life. Is are, What if the answer is no? What if the answer is give it up? What if the answer is, Abraham, take Isaac up the mountain and sacrifice him? Most of us are like, no way. Not only am I not giving you Isaac, but you're not even getting 30 minutes of ESPN, God. Sunday's my football day. Got to get in here right away and get out right away because there's a football game I've got to worship. We're not content. We want, 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 want. And God will challenge that. It's one of the ways he'll, he'll do it, to try to keep us humble. And here's where we'll find how much of my life I believe is mine and how much of it I really believe is God's. We are one of the most blessed nations in the history of the world as far as wealth is concerned. Did you know that the, the uh, average Christian... Let me reword this. The amount of money that the, that the average Christian, Protestant-believing, Bible-believing Christian in America donates annually in tithe is about 3%. 3%. Now, from my view, the minimum that God asks of us is 10% of our increase. That's the minimum. And so Joplin Emerson's view is that. Joplin Emerson's view is that anything less than that, you're actually stealing from God. That's my personal view. Not only are we not content, we're so not content, we're willing to steal from God to take what's his so we can purchase what we want. It's insanity. 
These are hard things to say. These are things we don't really want to consider. We want to feel like we are great, sacrificing, giving people. But here's the reality. When you look at the first century church, we're talking about power, right? I'm talking about the secret to spiritual power this morning. And one of those pieces is being humble. When you look at the first century church, we see these weird statements like, they had all things in common and there was no lack among them. Let me tell you what that literally means. Literally. What it means is that everybody considered that everything they had belonged to the church. Now, I'm not saying that's what we should do today. I'm not saying we shouldn't. But it is important you properly understand the Bible and know what it's saying. That is a fact that the first century church, if it would have been us, our mindset would have been everything I have is God. So like, what do you need? And your mindset would have been like, everything I have is God. So what do you need? And everybody had this mindset that all that we have belongs to God's. And our goal is to take all of it and put it together to take care of each other and to reach the world and to feed the hungry and to clothe the poor and to, and, and to ultimately bring glory to God. Everything we have is God's. That was the mindset they lived with. And now the average Christian is tithing 3%? Tell me something hasn't drastically changed. It has. And at the heart of it is the lack of contentment. At the heart of it is wanting more. At the heart of it, it's not being satisfied with what I have and trusting God with what I have. Even plan on preaching on tithes this morning is just a very easy example to help demonstrate this truth. And it's really like a shallow kindergarten example because Paul ain't talking about tithing here, folks. Paul's like, I've learned to be content with absolutely nothing. I've been shipwrecked, I've been starved, I've been falsely imprisoned, like my weaknesses, the things I've asked God to get rid of, and God says, I'm not going to get rid of that. Like, all of it. I've learned to be content in all things, persecution, you name it, it don't matter to me. I've learned to be content. I am satisfied. I know that ultimately all that I need comes from God. I know that he is my God and I would rather be right with him and him right with me and know that I'm close to him and that I'm in the center of his will than to have everything this world has to offer. That's all that matters. I have learned to be content. Did you know what's the irony is that, that this concept is what Paul's talking about in the famous passage of Philippians 4.13 when he says, I can do all things through Christ. Go read it. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Read the verses before it, the verses after it, and you'll find in context what Paul says, I've learned to be content in all things. Like, I know how to be starved. I know how to be imprisoned. I know how to be falsely accused. I know how to be beaten and still be content. Why? Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See that concept of strength in our weakness? You are surprised to know he wasn't actually talking about scoring a home, a home run. It wasn't about the great touchdown, the game-winning touchdown at the Super Bowl. No, it was about learning to be content in all things. So God challenges our contentment. I want you to notice that it is God that is allowing this process in Paul's life. It's important to note that. 
God could have taken it away, but God's answer was no. Here's what I want you to see, is that it is God's job to humble us. It's not our job to humble anyone else. It's not my job to humble you. And it's not your job to humble anyone else. There's really nothing worse than someone who thinks that's their job is to be the, the role of humbling people. Take note when you read through Romans chapter 12, which has the gifts of the church, there's no gift of the humbler. You've got the giver, you've got the teacher, you've got him that prophesies, prophesy, him that shows mercy, show mercy. You've got uh, even the exhorter, to him that exhorts, let him exhort. But there is no to him that humbles, really humble people hard, man. That is God's job. It's not ours. Our job's to build people up. Our job's to exalt people. But I'm talking to the person this morning that wants to truly walk in spiritual power with God. You have got to be willing to let God humble you, man. You have got to understand that this is part of God's process. All that God does is good. Everything God does is good. God does not ever do anything that's not good. And see, Paul learned to trust that. Like, well, I, 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 if I was God, I would take this thing away and make me humble. God says, no, I'm going to use this thing to make you humble because I'm God and you're not and my ways are higher than your ways and you don't actually know what you need like God knows what you need. So you've got to trust God with the process of humbling you in your life. Number three, the third action God takes to keep us humble, God uses earthly weaknesses as the stage for his power. God deliberately chooses the things that are weak and foolish. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, we learn that God chooses the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, that he chooses the weak to confound the strong. God chooses those things that we see as earthly weaknesses when God is looking for somewhere to demonstrate his power. This keeps us humble. What it means in a nutshell is God does not need you. You don't have any strength, any wisdom, any great attributes that God's up there like, I want that guy on my team now. What God's looking for is people that are weak and that are willing to recognize they're weak. People that are humble and are willing to stay humble. God uses our weaknesses you know, we are really the exact opposite as people of flesh and bone. If, if we were to get together with all of our other brothers and sisters in America, we're going to have this great big discussion like we need revival in this city. We need revival in this country. We were going to put together a team of preachers and pastors that were going to we were going to fund them and support them to be able to blaze this nation coast to coast and hold events that would change the world. I promise you this, promise. If the entire church had a say in it, you know who'd we choose? The most professional, people with millions of followers, people that are great at speaking. We would choose the strongest, wisest, smartest, most influential among us. That's who we'd pick. Why? My gut instinct that the answer to that question is because we don't actually believe 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We don't actually believe it. 
We don't understand it. Like, why would God use the weak? Why would God use the foolish? It doesn't make sense to us. And since I can't understand it, we're going to pick the greatest amongst us. But God says, that's not how I work. I cannot overexpress how important this is because if you want to be used by God, you've got to understand God's not impressed with your talents. God uses our weaknesses as a stage for his power. That's why Paul said, when I'm weak, then I am strong. You know, this is not about uh, sin. I think it's real important I communicate that this morning. This isn't about sin. Paul didn't have some secret sin. Or secretly he was having an affair with, you know, one of the guy's wives this entire time. Nobody knows about it. And he was like, God, please make it stop. No, 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 a thousand times no. This is not about sin. The Bible commands us to repent of sin. All sin. So if you have a sin in your life that you need to be repenting of, repent of it. Don't walk out this morning thinking, whoo, it's just my weakness. God's going to use it. No, he's not. God will not use your unrepented of sin as some stage for his power. So I want to be real clear about that this morning. I'm talking about weakness. Weaknesses are truly things that are out of our control. We don't know exactly what Paul's weakness was. But I want to share with you uh, how this has worked itself out in my life. I want, I want to share with you some, some like a couple of real life examples where my weaknesses God actually used as a stage for his power. And I want to explain how. And then I want to share with you how my earth, so one of my earthly strengths has been a downfall in my ministry and would continue to be a downfall in my ministry if I were to allow myself to lean upon that strength. And so first of all, my weakness. I have several weaknesses. Paul boasted his weaknesses, plural. But just one of my weaknesses from an earthly point of view, as we're talking about, earthly point of view is I have no education. I wasn't really embarrassed because I'm not. Uh, I'm truly not embarrassed of it at all. But it was awkward. I had to take a call from somebody take, uh, doing a seminary class working on their MDiv uh, earlier this week that needed to interview a pastor that had uh, pastored a church about our size. And I was given his name. We'd never met. He didn't know me. I didn't know him. And one of the questions that I had to ask was in relation to um, seminary and how it impacted my ministry and advice that I would give to him. And uh, the question was, what, what is the most important thing you would tell somebody coming out of seminary? And I'm not, I'm going to lie to you. I was a little like, I don't want to insult this guy. I'm not real sure how to answer that question. Because I'm not anti-seminary, by the way. But my answer was that probably 90% of everything you'll ever need to learn about ministry, you can't learn in seminary. And when you've just spent your life there and you're finishing your MDiv, that's not really what you want to hear. But nonetheless, I have no education. For me, that would seem to be a great hindrance in launching a church, pastoring a church. And some of you might say, well, hey, you know, you got 20 years of experience, but I didn't when we started. You know, I'd only been saved for five years when we started this church. 
And when I got saved at 20 years old, I didn't even know the story that Jesus rose from the dead and you know, died on a cross and rose from the dead for my sins. I didn't even know that. I had zero, and if there was such a thing as like negatives, I had some negatives, you know, when it come to Christianity class. There, I knew nothing. So I got saved when I'm 20, and then five years later, with no education, start a church. Doesn't make sense. And I'm gonna tell you the truth. When we started the church, it didn't make sense to me because I'm not an idiot. In my gut, I felt like there's no way anybody could ever respect me until I'm like at least 35. Who's gonna show up and listen to some 26-year-old kid who's only been saved for five years try to tell them how to live? I'm not dumb, I know. And so in my earthly mindset, I'm thinking this is a terrible idea. God's honest truth is, I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew that I knew I had heard the voice of God tell us to plant a church here, and I was just afraid not to, even though it didn't make sense to me. And from an earthly standpoint, that was a great weakness in my life. And you know what it did to me? It brought me to this place where I'm like, I've got, you know, I shouldn't be here. I'm not qualified. And so it brought me to a place where like I'm falling on my face before God every time before I get up to preach and I'm begging God, like, God, you have got to anoint me. These people cared enough to show up and worship you on Sunday morning. Don't let me get up there and waste their time. Make sure that what comes out is something that challenges them, that changes them. God, use me. It it put me in this place of like utter total dependence upon God because I had a great awareness of I've really got nothing to offer here. And I'm not being mean-spirited, but I'm pretty sure that probably nine out of 10 other pastors in the area weren't going at it with that same sense of fear and trembling because they were well-educated. They'd had several years under their belt. Can you see how God used my weakness as a stage for his strength? I want to share, you, share with you a strength that, has, that, that I've had to make like a decision to, to, to not lean on. And I'll tell you the same thing I told the first group this morning that I, you know, I hesitate saying this because it is an earthly strength. And in our flesh, in our flesh, we're like, oh, that's great. That's not a weakness. Just hear me out. One of my greatest issues that I must battle, if you will, or that has become a problem in ministry is that I am very intelligent. I always have been. I'm the kid that missed 36 days of high school my senior year because I was messed up on drugs and alcohol the entire time and still finished with a 3.7 GPA. I'm the kid that missed or stood, stayed up for 24 hours before taking my ACT and still scored a 25. I would show up, take a test, and ace it, score 95 or better. I would turn in the work. I can't explain it. All I can tell you is all my life, I've just been that kid. Never even had a B in my life until high school. Did advanced math in sixth grade, aced it, skipped the next level, was doing double advanced math in seventh grade. I've just always been that person. Now, let me explain why and how that could negatively impact ministry. 
it's a strength someone could try to lean on. I know, for example, I know the method for a good sermon. I know it needs to start with an introduction that would give you three to five minutes and a great feel of where this message is going to go. I know that each point needs to continue to lead and build upon the previous point, that they all need to be coherent, that it works best if they all tie together at the end, and by the time I'm done, it all comes together, and we finish with a very real sense of you at least have some type of action, some type of goal that you know that you can put in place today, tomorrow. It, it applies to you. I know that. And knowing that could lead somebody like myself to think that all you got to do is just put it together and package it and feed it, package it and feed it, package it and feed it, which is what most pastors do coast to coast and is powerless. So here's where God taught me this. About the fourth or fifth time that I preached, I had a great, like what I thought was a great message. Everything was there. All those pieces that are needed to make a message really impactful, every single piece from the intro to the close, every, and like I saw it, the buildup, everything, it was going to be the greatest performance anybody had ever seen. And I actually asked the, um, the people at the church to record it. First time I ever asked for a recording of my own sermon, because I knew how good it was going to be, and I was going to send it out all over the place, and everybody was going to want me to preach. It's embarrassing to say that, but it is a fact. That is where my heart was. And I nailed it. I mean, start to finish. It was a performance masterpiece. After it was all done, I was very proud of myself because it went exactly like I figured it would. And I'm sad to say the crowd responded exactly like I thought they would. It was an incredible day or service of manipulation. I had an intended response I wanted from them, and I started and finished and forced a response. I'm so embarrassed to say that, but it's the reality. We left. I got the tape. Uh, my daughter, Michaela, was just not even one year old at the time. And uh, we need to stop at Walmart to grab some stuff. I stayed in the car with her. I was listening to the tape because I, I, my ears needed to be blessed like everyone else's were, you know. Um, I couldn't wait any longer. Five minutes was enough. Like, I got to hear this powerful preaching. And this is God's honest truth. I got three to four minutes in, and I began to weep. I pulled it out. And I actually got, there was a trash can not too far from the car. I got out and I threw the thing away and I sat there and cried. And Andrea got back in and I'm all teared up and the tape's not. She's like, what's going on? I said, I threw it away. She's like, well, why'd you do that? And I told her, because it's garbage and that's where it belongs. But she didn't argue with me because she knew me. She knew. And I was so disgusted See, there's a difference between anointing and that which is not. And I know what the anointing is and I know what it's not. And I can tell you, God didn't touch a lick of that. To be frank, I didn't think I needed him to. 
I had this one without him. And I was so disgusted that I would use the sacredness of the time of preaching to manipulate people, to elevate myself. I will never be able to just, I just cannot describe how humiliated I was. And I made a promise to God that day, God, I will never do it again. And as I stand here before you, I can promise you I never have. The irony is one of my greatest strengths, God has said, son, you don't need it. Don't lean on it. Don't trust on it. I can talk through a donkey if I need to. What makes you think you're so special? I don't need that. And so what I've learned to do is like do the best I can to get something ready. I seek God for, for the message. And then when it's all said and done, I recognize, God, this here, like these are just words. There's, there's only one set. If you see my notes, if you see my notes up here, you can see those are black. These are black. These are black. I don't know if you can see it or not, but at the top there's blue. I put the scriptures in blue. In all of this. The only words here that have the power to change anybody's life is God's words. Those are actually anointed. But see, these they're not. And I recognize I gotta take these, I gotta lay them down before God. I gotta acknowledge that God, I don't have anything that can change anybody's life. It does not matter how good it's put together. It does not matter how clean it is unless you anoint me, unless you anoint their ears like, God, it is totally you and only you. And I thank God that at a super young age, God beat that into me. And I've learned that my greatest earthly strength can actually be a stumbling block that you lean upon and think, oh, you know, I'm, I'm good in this area. I don't need any help. Just like Peter did. Right? Like, I'll never fail you, Lord. Everyone else, all those weak people, yeah, they will, but not me. And it was as if Jesus said, actually, Peter, the very thing you think that is best about you is going to lead you to the greatest, most embarrassing moment of your life because you won't listen to me. I don't need your tough guy attitude. I don't, need, I don't need that mentality. What I need you to do is stop arguing with me and listen to me and do it my way. And Peter still thought he was going to teach Jesus a lesson. God uses earthly weakness as the stage for his power. Number four, and I'm done this morning. God allows us to use his strength only. This is the fourth thing God does to keep us humble. He allows us to use his strength only. Notice he said, my strength is perfected through weakness being your weakness. God didn't say your strength is perfected through your weaknesses. God says his strength, my strength is perfected through your weakness. Another way of saying that, God says my strength is best shown through your weakness. It is only God's strength that will ever accomplish God's work. It's not like 98% God plus 2% me. It's all God. 
I look at what God has done here over the last uh, 15, 16 years. It's mind-blowing to me. But the one thing I know is that all of it was God. Like, we didn't really, all that we did was just like say, yes, here are we. We're weak vessels. Use us. God, it's you, it's you, it's you. And I've watched God do a lot of great things. And at the end of the day, it's not really humiliating anymore because I've learned to boast in weakness and I see it. And it's awesome to be used by God. But at the end of the day, it's almost humiliating. Like, really, we didn't have anything to do with that. We were just like watching Yep, God did this, God did that, God did this, and I watched it happen, but I didn't do it. You didn't do it. We didn't do it, but God did it, and he did it through us. That's the amazing thing about it, and he did it through weak vessels who are humble enough to recognize that God allows us to use his strength and his strength only. But here's the awesome thing about that. God's strength is enough. Think about his strength. Think about what God is capable of. And God says his strength is perfected in our weaknesses, brothers and sisters. That's mind-blowing to me. No wonder Paul could say, now I boast in my weaknesses. Because I understand that really these are the things that God's looking for to use. These are the things that confound the wise. The, the earth is not, is not confounded when they see wise people speaking wise. The earth is not confounded when they see strong people being strong. No, the earth is confounded when they see the foolish being wise, when they see the weak being strong. And God says, this is why I look for these people. I'm going to ask our worship team to come. And uh, I, I want to explain something kind of in closing. So... The Bible says that in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, where Paul said that God chooses the weak to confound the wise, the strong and the, the foolish to confound the wise, he also says this, not many strong are called, not many wise or noble are chosen. Very important term. Here's what he said, not many. He did not say none. He said not many. Why? Because most who do have earthly wisdom, strength, power, prestige, you name it, they want to flaunt it. They're not willing to humble themselves and acknowledge it all means nothing. It can do nothing for the kingdom of God. It can do nothing for eternity. In the end, I came into the world with nothing and I will leave the world with nothing. I am but dust. Most people who attain to earthly success are too prideful to lay down their earthly success and acknowledge it's worthless. And so God says, well, I can't work with that one because I need people who understand that my stage is weakness. I need people who don't think they're strong, people who don't think they're wise, people who don't think they're great. I need people who not only recognize their weakness, but are willing to let me use their weakness. You know what we try to do, folks? We try to hide them. We hide our weaknesses. Instead of just acknowledging, like, you know, I'm weak in this area of my life, but God's grace is sufficient. Paul's conclusion was this. He, he, this is one continual statement, but I, I want to break it down in three sections. Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly over my weaknesses. That's what Paul said. So what I'm going to boast about, the thing I'm going to get excited about, the thing I want to talk about, the thing that truly in my heart I'm happy about is my weaknesses. 
You cannot truly make that statement without the revelation of the Holy Spirit in your life showing you just how true this is. Because if I recognize that God only works through weakness, if I recognize that God only works through someone that's willing to humble themselves, I recognize then my weaknesses are a bonus to me. They keep me humble. But he says, not only does he boast over my weakness, but so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. The power of Christ may rest upon me. That word rest, it's an awesome word. What it means is to settle over like a tent. It's to be surrounded like a tent. It's like to come down upon something and surround it. It's like he that abides in the shadow of the Most High. It's like being near to God in such a way that God encamps around you. That's what that word rest means. So that the power of Christ may rest upon me as if it surrounds me. I'm encamped by the very power of Christ himself. No wonder Paul's boasting in the weaknesses. Paul was a man, too, that had to come to learn that all of his education, all of his stuff, the greatest Pharisee of Pharisees, blah, 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 blah. And that's what he said. It's all nothing. It's meaningless. It's foolishness. He said, I could boast if I wanted. I could go down the checklist. Check, 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 check. It's all meaningless. I've learned instead to boast in what really matters in the kingdom, and that is my weaknesses. And those are the areas that God uses me. And he makes this sweet and simple statement. When I am weak, then... I am strong. Brothers and sisters, most of us don't like to remain weak. Because it humbles us. There's even a certain part of being weak that brings about fear if you're not careful. You want to feel like you're in control of everything. You can fix everything. You do everything. You don't need help. We need help. Brothers and sisters, we need the help of God. And I will look to the hills wherefrom my help does come. And when I am willing to be weak, when I'm weak, it's then and only then really that I am truly strong because I have God's power in that moment of my life. 